from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The Biden administration is pouring more money into ramping up competition in the meat sector. But today, we're here to talk about strengthening competition, which will bring down cost. But will a billion dollars fix the concentration concerns? As the supply crunch continues, a growing number of farmers are concerned about finding enough input. John Deere launches its first fully autonomous tractor. We'll tell you when it'll be hitting a farm field near you. A wool mill that's been a staple in one Minnesota community since 1865. It is said at one point that this mill produced half the wool blankets sold in the United States. And in John's world, New Year, old resolutions. The Biden administration is launching a new effort to boost competition in the meat industry that it hopes will also help lower prices for consumers. President Biden, along with USDA Secretary Vilsack and Attorney General Garland, unveiling the plan this week while also meeting virtually with farmers and ranchers. 50 years ago, ranchers got over 60 cents for every dollar a family spent on beef. Today, they get about 39 cents. 50 years ago, hog farmers got 40 to 50 cents for each dollar they spent. Today, it's about 19 cents. And the big companies are making massive profits. While their profits go up, the prices you see at the grocery stores go up commensurate. The prices farmers receive for the products they are bringing to market go down. This reflects the market being distorted by lack of competition. Under the plan, the administration will dedicate $1 billion from the American Rescue Plan to expand independent processing. It will also strengthen the rules under the Packers and Stockyards Act, along with new Product of USA labeling rules, a review process already started by USDA. It will promote competition with the Department of Justice and USDA working to coordinate efforts by launching in the next 30 days a new portal for reporting potential violation of competition laws. And finally, it will work to increase transparency in the cattle markets so ranchers get a fair price. A meat industry representative not happy with the news. The North American Meat Institute saying in a statement the Biden administration, quote, continues to ignore the number one challenge to meat and poultry production, labor shortages, end quote. The institute president saying that the administration has refused to engage with the packing and processing sector, adding cattle producers are currently seeing higher prices because packers have processed the backlog of animals in the system. We will have much more on the plan, including reaction from economists, coming up in our next half hour. Well, Canada is improperly restricting access to its market for U.S. dairy products, a violation of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That's the finding from the USMCA dispute settlement panel this week. The panel was launched last May. This is the first case brought before the panel. The U.S. Trade Representative's Office saying the panel agreed with the U.S. that Canada is breaching its USMCA commitments by reserving most of the end quota quantity in its dairy tariff rate quotas for the exclusive use of Canadian processors. The National Milk Producers Federation and the U.S. Dairy Export Council celebrating the decision, calling it a victory for U.S. dairy farmers and the dairy industry. 
Well, one of the biggest names in farm equipment says it plans to make a fully autonomous tractor available to farmers later this year. Farm Journal cameras were there as Deere officials showed off the advanced technology and consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, including a video of farmer from Blue Earth, Minnesota, putting the technology to work on his farm by simply swiping his smartphone to activate the tractor to do some tillage work, all with no one in the cab. We need labor for lots and lots of hours for short periods of time. The auto steer and technology has helped reduce our labor load, which makes my life a lot easier. The autonomous equipment is added to the current 8R tractors. It contains several cameras that can detect obstacles and make distance calculations, allowing the farmer to control and watch everything from their phone using a John Deere app. Now, when it encounters an issue, there are built-in safety measures to stop the machine, and John Deere expects the technology to be able to deliver 24-hour operations to farmers, which one tester said could be a life changer on his farm. Autonomy improves the quality of life for farmers. Working from inside a cab up to 18 hours a day is physically and mentally exhausting. There are a lot of weeks when farmers are working from well before sunrise to long after sunset. Now, with this autonomous tractor, we're giving back valuable time to farmers so they can spend it getting other jobs done on time or with their loved ones. The autonomous tractors will be initially set up to work with a chisel plow, but Deere says that may eventually be used with planters, sprayers, and other equipment. You may be wondering the price tag of the John Deere technology. Well, John Deere hasn't announced that yet. Well, farmer sentiments seems to have improved a bit going into the new year. The latest Purdue CME Ag Economy Barometer rose in December, but 40% of farmers say they are having trouble sourcing enough inputs for this year. The index climbing to a reading of 125, that's nine points higher than November. And the rise in the barometer was mostly attributable to an improvement in the index of current conditions. The index of current conditions rose from a reading of 128 last month to a reading of 146 this month as farmers expressed more optimism about the current situation in their farming operation than they did a month earlier. Also this month, 45% of those asked said low farm machinery inventory levels did impact their purchase plans. Well, winter weather taking over to start 2022. We will have your forecast next. Time now for a check of weather with Matt Urasovic. Matt, what a chilly start to 2022. Blizzard conditions in the plains, but does the cold and snow continue to headline this January? Yeah, Ty, and it has been a very cold start to the month of January. More snow and cold could be on the way, but as we head through this week, could be a little on the milder side, especially in places that dealt with very cold temperatures just last week. So right now, looking at our root zone, you can see very moist soil down there in the Tennessee Valley after all of that rain and snow that came through to end last week. And then we're very dry here, right through the middle part of the country. And if we look back towards the west, where all those drought conditions have been, they've had a lot of mountain snow. We've got to wait for some of this to melt, but eventually as it does, 
does, we could be seeing the a difference up there in the Pacific Northwest, especially and more rain could be on the way this week as we head through the mid Atlantic states as well. So right now the drought monitor showing just that a little bit of uh, some uh, dry conditions there along the eastern seaboard, but most of Texas and the southern plains back for the west half western half of the United States really, really dry. The extreme drought conditions have been minimalized, but still we're going to be looking at a wide area that still needs to improve as we head towards the spring season. And we start off this week with just a little bit of cold air coming through the Great Lakes and into the Northeast. Meanwhile, a ridge building in the center of the country. This is what's going to give us a nice little break from that extreme cold that we dealt with just last week, but it does break down eventually. It is January and as we head through the rest of this week and into the weekend, we'll start to see that chillier air dip back in to especially the Northern Plains and the Great Lakes. So as we head through this Monday, the main story is going to be some lake effect snow going on downwind of uh, all of the Great Lakes. Meanwhile, very warm across the deep south as the system pulls off of the Florida coast. Could see a few showers, maybe a couple of, rumble of rumbles of thunder down that way while remaining mild back there on the western half of the country and another system coming into the Pacific Northwest bringing more rain and some snow along with it. As we head towards Wednesday, mild across the middle of the country, some shower activity starting to move its way up from the Pacific and come into places like Texas and New Mexico, bringing some shower activity and then the warm air starts to surge up just a little bit more mild up there in the north, warm across the Florida coast there. And then here comes all of that rain and a little bit of snow to the north as we head into Friday, staying chilly out ahead of that next system. And here's a look at the temperatures this week below normal across the eastern half of the country, Great Lakes and Northeast, Mid-Atlantic included above normal back there to the west and the precipitation for this week above normal across the southern tier of the country and below normal back there in the Pacific Northwest. And here's a look at those 30 day temps below normal across the northern tier and Pacific Northwest. Meanwhile, above normal across the southern half of the country. Same thing goes with below normal conditions there for precip as we head through uh, the next 30 days there along the southern coast of the United States. Well, concerns over Brazil's weather and their crop fueled the markets to end 2021. So what is moving prices now? Garrett Toy and Brian Split join me next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by January 31st with coupon code USFR for free shipping. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Garrett Toy, as well as Brian Split, joining us. All right, Garrett, before we close out 2021, it was really a story of weather trumping demand, and that was really fueling the market. But now, here we set kind of this first full week of 2022. What is driving prices right now? It's still weather. The demand's going to come if these production cuts keep coming. You, you've had Agarella here with a 13, 14 million metric ton cut and Brazilian soybean production. You had Stonex out with similar type cuts. And we've got soybean prices that are nearing $14. And all of a sudden we're looking at, you know, global soybean supplies or at least the South American supply situation that's now looking at a year over year decline rather than a year over year increase. So, um, you know, that's going to potentially help the U.S. S&D a little bit. You know, the exports continue to lag and the, the focus from the Chinese 
for the near term is on South America, you know, January, February, March, new crop, South American supplies. But ultimately, you know, the soybean crop, if it continues to drop in South America, is going to drive some of the demand back to the U.S. on the export front in July, August, September timeframes. So the, the focus, it's fo still focused on weather, focused on beginning of the year money flows, but uh, demand is, is going to come on the back end if these, these issues in South America continue. Well, Brian, I mean, next week we have a big USDA report coming up. So when you look at the issues and just the wide range of, of expectations we have for South America's crop, yet some of those concerns about demand and, and, and some of the things that Garrett cautioned about, you know, what could happen next week with this big USDA report? Well, so we've got several reports that are going to come out uh, all at once, and we're going to have the quarterly stocks. We're going to have the final production numbers from this year's crop. Uh, that'll all be integrated into the new balance sheet for WASD for our domestic balance sheets. And we'll have the winter wheat seeding. So there's an awful lot that's going to happen on these numbers. Uh, I think based on some of the signals the market's telling us, and specifically for corn, we continue to look at the lack of carry in the market. Uh, March and May corn are, are essentially trading at the same price. Both of those are trading a few cents over the July contract. Uh, we've got basis on fire uh, in, in most areas out there. Uh, especially out west, where I think they're concerned about, you know, this this dry condition continuing in the spring and in summer and potentially having a drought. Uh, a, a client of the firm out in liberal Kansas that has a, a local feed yard out there, uh, you know, bidding a dollar over the board. So um, this is something that uh, I, I think is, is going to potentially show lighter than expected stocks. Uh, and we'll see how the overall production numbers come out. But the structure of the market's telling us right now that things may be a little bit tighter than what the USDA is leading on on the corn. Uh, exports are good. We're running well above the five-year average on exports. And uh, that might not be the case on soybeans. We're running right at about the five-year average. But as Garrett had mentioned, I, I think those sales will come down the road, uh, especially if we continue to see these numbers in South America drop. And I know right now the, the areas in central to northern uh, Brazil are looking very good. We saw the acreage increases in, in the areas that are seeing good produ production potential. Uh, but we're going to be kind of looking at what the weather looks like in those areas over the next two weeks, because if we keep getting rain and maybe as much as uh, 150 to 200 percent of normal, that's going to slow down uh, harvest. Uh, and that is going to delay the planting of the Safrina corn crop, which was a, a problem last year that pushed their corn crop into the dry season. And that might bring uh, some concerns about their corn crop down the road several months. So I think we've got a lot of reasons to still be friendly about the demand potential. Yeah, so Garrett, I mean, historically, where are the biggest changes made in these January reports by USDA? Is it on the supply side or is it on the demand side? Uh, it's it's the stocks report. You know, the stocks report is really where the 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 the, the, the tire meets the road. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is, I I don't think that we can expect to see another 600 million bushel miss. Uh, like we saw, you know, last year, and I I do think it's interesting. Um, you know, the, the, obviously the South American weather has has pulled corn up. The beans have been the leader and has pulled corn higher. You know, if this USD report was held today, March soybeans are exact same price as what they were this this point last year, but corn is a dollar ten higher. And so corn was the the weak leg last year, had the upside potential. Now we've kind of caught up here, um, and I think that once we get the stocks report and there's no surprises, I still agree with with Brian that, you know, we've got cash this time last year was 25 over in central Illinois, it's 13 over, but yet futures are a dollar 10 higher, you know, cash is still strong, a lot of cash overs. I would not be expecting a, a bearish surprise in the stocks report by any means, just given what the, 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 the old spider senses are, are telling us on the, on the cash and the fundamentals right now.
Yeah, really good point. Okay, Garrett, Brian, we still have a lot more to cover, so we'll do that later on U.S. Farm Report. Stay with us. John Phipps joins us next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. Well, a survey late last year showed one in four Americans made a New Year's resolution. John Phipps shares his this weekend. Well, the holiday season has faded into a fog of riotous parties and social regrets, or in our case, regrettable Hallmark movies and delicious meals that somehow lasted for days because the recipes Jan has are for 12. This year was an away game for our descendants, so Jan and I enjoyed our traditional decorations and music undisturbed by the commotion and those pesky grandchildren. Yippee. But that is behind us and we march into 2022 with a reprint of resolutions from years before. Only some of these have taken on a slightly less loathsome nature. The vague weight control promise is now taken a little more seriously, especially before our annual checkups. One big reason is I don't want to buy new clothes, as longtime viewers can well attest. Therefore, I face a hard line on the scale that none shall pass. The other familiar oath is to get more exercise. The least obnoxious choice is simply walking. First, it doesn't require changing clothes or buying equipment. Although I have to admit, wearing a fitness monitor or something like an Apple Watch has proven to be a surprising aid. It provides real numerical data instead of dubious memories of exaggerated activity. Even though the wind always seems to be in my face, the sheer simplicity of walking frees the mind to fret or rejoice over past and future alike. Listening to music, or better yet, a podcast can offset the tedium. Finally, every year that I keep walking, I am sadly reminded of friends who no longer can manage even this modest activity, whose knees or hips or backs now curtail routine exercise. Self-propulsion is a gift, I've learned, not a guarantee. This is all well and good when temperature and precipitation are tolerable. The tricky part is when the weather does turn miserable and we find ourselves wishing we could be out doing what has surprisingly become a not terrible activity. For those days, I've measured off the periphery of my workshop and the farm shop so that I can walk a zillion laps to get to two miles. By the way, I rec recommend doing half your laps clockwise and the other half in reverse. This trivial effort to burn a few calories allows moments of virtuous smugness. The problem is exercise seems to increase my appetite. Still, I can testify that doing what you can, when you can, helps postpone some aging penalties. Thanks, John. My daughter's actually learned about resolutions at school this week. One's in kindergarten, the other in first grade. Both of them told me that their resolution was to be kind to everyone. That's a resolution I think we can all get behind. All right, up next, Machinery Feet. He has tractor tails this week. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we've got a treat from Illinois for you. A classic Oliver Super 77. It actually came from Kiwani Sail Barn. It hadn't sat inside because it was kind of brown. <laughs> but that was okay, at least it only had a single layer of paint and it was easy to take off. The price was dirt cheap, so that's the way we like to buy them. 
It sat on the elevator most of the time, elevating grain in the, the cribs. It was handy because you could just put the PTO on from the back and throttle. You could get it real easy too. So had trouble uh, battery going dead and you know, monkeyed around with the key, checked the wires, put new ends on and everything. The points were stuck in that regulator and that cured the sucker. Uh, it goes to parades and then you get rides through the town or you can go on a tractor ride too if you hit the right timing. Well, the Biden administration is continuing to tackle competition in the meat sector head on. So will the plan unveiled just this week do that? We'll have the answer in our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, nearly eight months after announcing plans to address antitrust issues in the meat sector, the Biden administration unveiling their plan this week. And that plan was crafted from 450 comments the administration received after asking for input on how to increase independent processing capacity. The announcement comes with ramping up regulations this year, and that includes under the Packers and Stockyards Act, as well as issuing new product of USA labels on meat. But the bulk of the announcement came in the form of $1 billion. As some ag economists caution, the plan may help, but not fix consumer and cattle producers' concerns right now. Every Thursday at 1 o'clock, you'll find Byron Wheeler right here. Our sellers for our feeder cattle, will, it'll be a 200-mile radius. 13, 13 As the president and owner of Wheeler Livestock Auction, the business has changed since the family made its start 32 years ago. We've added a lot better computer technology. We've got the internet's the Facebook. We sell on live auction. People have the opportunity to bid online. Wheeler says the feeder cattle buyers will travel from as far as 700 miles away. The cattle market is a very viable tool for the cattlemen. They need to be all over the country to get your fair price for your cattle. John McGraw is one of those buyers who makes the 180 mile round trip to Wheeler Livestock Auction most weeks. The market's gotten better and because it's better they want to sell them and take advantage of that. And as a buyer, McGraw says it's the efficiency and reliability that keeps him coming back. They tell you they're going to have something, they have it, they don't exaggerate, and they make it a point to take care of the buyer and the seller, which is, in my opinion, the best thing. It's those same attributes that helps draw in sellers like Dale Underwood. I just look for a place that's a fair market and honest. Even in his 70s, Underwood has grown to appreciate the online auction aspect of the weekly sales. And I think that's uh, the way to go. I think that was a good decision for the auction bond. I, I really do. Before the wheelers, the auction is the foundation of true price discovery in cattle prices today. It's the only way to achieve the true price of what the cattle are worth is at auction. You have multiple buyers bidding on your cattle. At the end of the day, you know what the value of them is. The debate over price has been a topic among cattle producers for years. And just last year, that debate found a home at the White House. But today, we're here to talk about strengthening competition, which will bring down cost. 
President Biden, alongside Agriculture Secretary Vilsack and Attorney General Garland, kicking off 2022 with a big announcement that followed through on the White House executive order in July to promote competition across the U.S. Without meaningful competition, farmers and ranchers don't get to choose who they sell to. The announcement this week was four-prong, aimed at promoting competition within the meat industry while also driving down record retail meat prices. 50 years ago, ranchers got over 60 cents for every dollar a family spent on beef. Today, they get about 39 cents. Millsack provided details of the plan, which includes $1 billion to help increase processing capacity and expand competition. We're going to need a lot of innovation in this industry. Uh, we're going to need uh, n new business models. We're going to need new ways uh, of innovation and technology to create greater efficiencies. Uh, and small and mid-sized facilities need to have the opportunity to have this innovation as opposed uh, to the big four. The Biden administration says the four companies control over 80% of the market. And now the quest to expand processing capacity is gaining more momentum and money. Several cattle producer groups have been asking for expansion in the packing and processing sector, specifically more plants, more companies, and by extension, more aggregate capacity. I think the biggest thing we see here is that it provides an opportunity for maybe smaller processors that want to focus on local markets to be able to grow and expand in those markets. Glenn Tonzer of Kansas State cautions even with the push for more local processing plants, the biggest challenge will still be labor. There's a long list of things in that announcement. The minority of them and the minority of the dollars deal with labor issues. And I think that is a concern that at least some groups would have even with this announcement. University of Missouri economist Scott Brown agrees labor will be a big hurdle to keeping any plant open, adding that more automation will be costly for even smaller size plants. I think it's it's hard to overcome the economies of scale that exist in, in meatpacking today. And, and that's the issue that I'm not sure we're going to see addressed out of the announcement that we saw this week. I don't think we're going to fully automate the industry overnight. A billion dollars is a lot of money, but it's not enough to do that. During the White House roundtable announcement this week, Oklahoma Farmers Union said adding processing capacity is a major win for more than just cattle producers. If we can process them on a local level and then sell uh, directly to consumers, it's just a win-win for everybody. It's a win for the consumer. They get more choices. Uh, in my opinion, they get a better product. He says in 2020, $10 million in CARES money went directly to expanding processing capacity across the state. And out of that, we had 19 new mom and pop uh, small processors either open up for business here in our state or they were able to upgrade an old facility to meet the new uh, safety and health standards. Uh, and be able to market that across state lines. But could there be too much packing capacity in the next few years? Well, economists say it's a real concern, especially considering the national cattle herd is shrinking due to drought and other challenges across the U.S. You know, we may have fewer cattle as we get into 2023-2024. And so we might incent some uh, operations, some processing operations to expand that are in the small to medium size that find themselves in a much tougher boat uh, if there are a lot fewer cattle supplies as we get into 2023, 2024. Consumers face record high retail meat prices today. The Biden administration says packer concentration is to blame. I think in the short run, it's very hard to have any uh, of 
of this policy have a lot of effect on retail beef prices. There's a lot of just simple supply and demand concepts that are interwoven in very complicated ways in this vertically connected industry. And you can't point to one thing and sort of hope it's going to solve it. It's not that simple. But as consumers are faced with higher meat prices, cattle producers have not seen cattle prices climb at the same rate. I'm not sure that the changes that we see here are by themselves going to help producers either. We need to continue to be focused on price discovery and adequate price discovery. That's a very complex issue. I always say more cash traded cattle uh, help with better price discovery, but doesn't equate to higher prices. As local livestock auctions continue to help create price discovery and transparency today, labor issues are also a battle some face. We are trying to get a USDA full-time market reporter and due to lack of funds with the government, with everything that's went on, they're short-staffed, and so we're waiting our turn to get a USDA market reporter. And as Wheeler says, higher grain prices combined with climbing fuel and fertilizer costs continue to be a concern. He's optimistic about the new year. The cattle market's on the climb. It looks like, you know, I think 2022 is going to be a great year for the, for the cattlemen. Tonzer says there's a huge opportunity for breakthrough innovations within the meat processing sector with this, especially if public and private money are combined to create new cutting-edge plants. But economists say at this point, there's really a question of what USDA's definition will be of small or medium-sized plants. But when we come back, meat demand is propping up prices. So how is the demand picture overall? That's next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, we just finished you know, really an extensive report on, on cattle, and we'll talk a little bit more about demand as well as supply coming up in here in just a minute. But, Brian, before we do that, I mean, we're coming up on a year when China really started that, you know, that big buying spree of, of, of corn. When you look at the situation today and how we really haven't been um, exporting some of the goods out of the country at a rate that, that we would like to, if China came in with big buys today, do you think we could export all of those purchases. I do. Uh, you know, I, I think we have to remember that uh, the the shipment pace may not be what we'd like it to be, uh, because we had some obstacles earlier in the year. We have to remember that we had a hurricane that knocked out a lot of our shipment capacity uh, early fall, and uh, that was an issue and 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 really delayed a lot of the exports of what should have left the country. Uh, but I think as we move forward, uh, you know, the challenges are going to continue to be. Uh, the uh, the freight um, and what we have uh, in the Gulf it should be able to get the, the product out of the country. I don't see a problem with that. So, you know, the employment issues, uh, labor, that's still going to be a struggle. Uh, if we continue to see more variants, that's going to be something that, uh, you know, we'll have ebb and flows where the availability of, of uh, people to actually do the work is going to be an issue. But I, I still think if we saw China come in here, the market's going to find a way to get the, mar the product out the door. And I think the, the end user, we did a survey of end users uh, that work with the firm, and they have an awful lot of coverage out there right now. Uh, we're estimating maybe about 60% of what their needs would be out to about August. Uh, so I, I think the, the product is out there in, in the hands of where they need to be to get the, the product out the door. Garrett, where do you think the biggest risk lies with corn demand? Is it international and in export demand, or is it domestically when you look at the feed side as well as things like ethanol? 
It's it's well, I mean, we've got a reduced herd, you know, we've in the cattle market, and that's what's kind of supporting prices here. But I, I think you're, it's a it's a short term issue rather than a long term issue in demand. I think that um, you know, you look at this corn rally that we've had on the heels of the South American weather. Uh, the ethanol market might have you know, it, it's the ethanol mar- ethanol prices are moving in the opposite direction now. We you know, with this issue in Kazakhstan, crude's back above eighty dollars, so maybe that helps the ethanol market. But these ethanol margins have really kind of come under pressure. It's probably a short-term issue. I mean, we've built such a, a cushion on on the the ethanol grind over the first three four months of the marketing year. We've got about a two hundred million bushel cushion here, so we've got some room to work. But how this impacts you is that you know maybe you're not going to see as strong a basis pushes that you might think you'd see over the you know, next four to six weeks, just because it, like be, uh, like Brian said, um, you know a lot of people have have coverage, but also because the margin structure just isn't as strong as what it was maybe in the first quarter of the marketing year. Now that being said, um, you know with these continued South American production issues, <clears throat> exports are still running 150 200 million bushel over the USDA forecast. If these issues, you know, you're, they're talking Argentina under 50 now uh, and we don't know what kind of acres we're going to see out of Brazil and Safrina crop you know there's still the arrow could still be pointing higher on exports. Okay Brian real quick we just heard from a couple economists that said listen when you look at prices today it's a product of supply and demand we've had really strong demand when you look at, at, at cattle do you expect that to continue? I do. I think one of the issues here in the short term and this has led to the some of the weakness that we've seen this week is concerns about uh, the slaughter, uh, you know, again, labor is another, uh, we, we keep talking about labor, but when you have employees at plants call in sick and, and it seems like everybody's gotten this new variant over the last month or so, everybody that I know, uh, I think this is a short-term issue that'll work itself out. Brian, Garrett, thank you so much. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, Andrew McRae joins us for the first time this year as he travels the countryside to visit a wool factory that's been a staple since the 1800s. Along the banks of the Cannon River in Faribault, Minnesota, you'll find an old brick woolen mill next to a dam and waterfall. It's a picturesque setting that has been a part of this town from almost the very beginning. It started in 1865 with a, uh, a German immigrant who came here as a cabinet maker and learned that there was a need for wool or wool batting uh, and decided to buy a one-horse treadmill carding machine to card wool for batting for quilts. Paul Moody can show you the harness collar from the horse named Jenny that was walking that treadmill in 1865. The Klemmer family established the mill. It was later purchased by the Johnsons and those two families owned the mill for well over 100 years. The reach of the products made here went far beyond Minnesota. It is said at one point that this mill produced half the wool blankets sold in the United States, and I'm going to say that was probably in the 50s and 60s, maybe 70s. And it's also said that during World War I and World War II, that the odds were that the blanket a soldier was carrying came out of this very mill that we're standing in. The first washable wool blanket and the first moth-proof blanket both came from this mill. But this factory began to fall on hard times in the 1990s. By 2009, it closed and was then flooded by the Cannon River. Paul entered the story in a most unlikely way. It was a college roommate uh, called me that I hadn't heard from in 25 years and said his dad wanted me to come down and, and see the mill. He was going to come down here for a visit, so I, I agreed to come down and, and take a look. But five minutes into the tour, Paul had already seen enough to know this was not of interest to him. He jokes he would have left immediately if not for the fact he had ridden down from the Twin Cities with someone else. Two hours later, after hearing the story of what the mill had been and perhaps what it could be once again, 
Paul's thoughts had changed. I went home and said to my wife, I said, there's, there's something really special down here. I said, I don't know what it will take or if it can be done, but there's a, there's a story and there's something special there. Paul got in touch with one of his cousins who took a look. They jumped in and purchased the Faribault Woolen Mill, and by July 5th of 2011, they began operations with five former employees. By the end of the year, 40 folks were back at work operating the machines and producing woolen wares. It's one of only two vertical woolen mills in the nation. With quality comes a process of craftsmanship that may take several days or over a week to complete. We dye the wool, then we cart it, we spin it into yarn, then we weave it, wash and we wet dry finish it. It's napped, it gets cut and sewn. I mean, all of that happens under this roof. They source wool from both the U.S. and Australia, depending on the time of the year. Some products require wool from a specific location. We still do work for the military, for Army and Navy and some West Point. Everything needs to be U.S., so we're buying wool from our supplier. We just need that certified that it's U.S. wool. Paul says brand matters. He's often reminded of the importance of the name on the blanket. The name resonates. There's times when we've had sales or a warehouse sale. If the blanket doesn't have our label on it, people won't buy it. This factory on the banks of the Cannon River has been a staple for well over a century. Its employees have produced blankets for our troops overseas and for countless people in this nation and around the world. It's truly a special place that people love to come and experience. Traveling the countryside in Faribault, Minnesota, I'm Andrew McCray. Thank you, Andrew, and you can watch more of Andrew's travels on agweb.com. Well, when we come back, John Phipps talks making hay. Hay and small farms. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF helping you do the biggest job on earth. Well, some producers in the West are struggling with not enough hay due to drought, but that's not the case everywhere. Here's John Phipps. From Dale and Bev Nortz in Richland Center, Wisconsin, hope that's close. We went to selling hay for a living. Too much hay in the country and too much brought in from out West. Not as many livestock farms. Seems like whatever you do isn't going to make you money. It's like taking a cribbage board to a poker game. Whatever you have in your hands, no one wants. Well, thank you for writing. Your story is echoed by many smaller farms. Hay is the number three crop in the United States, a fact many of us typically forget. But it includes large, sophisticated producers using enormous machinery and small farms on rougher ground growing competing products in competing ways. The concentration of livestock in our country also means that fewer markets exist for small amounts of variable quality forage. Hay is one of the few crops that can be grown on almost any farm. I've never truly understood the hay market because it's so dominated by local supply and demand. Hay is a farm product with low economic density, which means distant shipping is prohibitive unless quality, like first cutting alfalfa, will make it profitable. For instance, this fall, a truckload of beans would have been worth about 10,000 bucks just a few miles from my farm. The same volume of hay would have been a few hundred dollars. The fundamental challenge for small farms is painfully obvious, producing things other people want to buy, not things we like to produce. Numerous, wonderful lifestyles and rural cultures of earlier times were made possible essentially by consumers with limited choice. Farm products were mostly consumed locally. The game changer was mechanization. 
It continues today, only it's focusing on automation. With labor no longer the limiting input, rural populations began and continued to plummet, taking along small towns with them. Education, ag innovation, and technology reinforced this trend. In this environment, the small farms I see surviving are unique, with growing and marketing innovations that help shield them from larger competitors. They are also able, by geography or online sales, to connect with those relatively few consumers who appreciate their uniqueness and will pay for it. For typical small producers of row crops or hay, few answers other than off-farm income have been found to make them competitive. Thanks, John. And if you have questions or comments for John, you can email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, GM unveiling its first ever electric truck. We'll have a first-hand look next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's January 18th online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. General Motors unveiling its first electric truck in Las Vegas this week. The debut happened at the Consumer Electronics Show. The Detroit automaker says the work truck, or what's being called WT, will be available starting spring of 2023. The company says the truck has a 400-mile range. GM has made a commitment to fully transition to electric vehicles by 2035. Well, that's all the time that we have this weekend. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.